Be careful what you wish for, especially when we are talking about our matriarch, Rebecca. Let's find out why. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. On our last podcast, we first met Isaac's wife, Rebecca. After Sarah's death, Abraham sent his servant, Eliezer, back to Mesopotamia to find a wife for Isaac. He chose Rebecca, Abraham's great-niece, who agreed to return with him and marry Isaac. This story has a nice ending. Isaac welcomed Rebecca into his mother's tent, where she became a comfort to Isaac after the loss of his mother. But if this were the end of the story, we would write, and they lived happily ever after. But it's not. There was more. A lot more. In Genesis chapter 25, we learn why they did not live happily ever after. For the second time in the Bible, we encounter the recurrent theme of infertility. The first time, by the way, was when Sarah had difficulty bearing children. Rebecca, though, was also infertile. At that time, of course, there were no infertility doctors and no reproductive technology, aside from various herbs and potions. The only real recourse for an infertile woman and her husband was to pray to God and hope for a positive answer. In verse 21, Isaac prayed to God that Rebekah would have a child, that she would become fertile. God answered Isaac's prayer, and Rebekah became pregnant. But as I said in the opening, be careful what you wish for. To put it mildly, Rebekah endured a rough pregnancy. She personally entreated God, asking why she was having such difficulty. Again, God answered, but this time the reason must have shocked her. God told her that, quote, two nations are in your womb, and two separate peoples shall emerge. Their might shall pass from one to the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. I'm not sure that was much of a comfort, but at least she understood why these two fetuses were continuously fighting each other in the womb. And yes, she did give birth to twins. We know the story. The first baby emerged red and hairy, and the parents called him Esau. The second baby emerged holding the heel of his older brother, and they called him Jacob, or in Hebrew, Yaakov, the heel holder. In half a verse, the Torah jumps to their young adulthood. Esau became a mighty hunter, while Jacob, in what would become a common pattern in Genesis, stayed at home. It was uncommon at that time for a young man to be a homebody. He should have been expected to hunt, gather food, shepherd the herd, or farm, but not to cook. Esau came home one day after an unsuccessful hunting trip, famished and agitated. Jacob was cooking a red lentil stew. Esau demanded some of that, quote, red stuff. Sensing an opportunity to torment his older brother, Jacob extorted Esau's birthright, the right of inheritance, before serving him the stew. In its terse wording, the Torah details Esau's actions. He ate, he drank, he got up, he left, and he spurned his birthright. No blessings, no gratitude. He ate like an animal. The Torah is disgusted by this behavior and saw it as a justification for Jacob taking the birthright. Towards the end of Isaac's life, 
we learn that he and Rebekah had chosen sides. Isaac favored Esau. Isaac had a taste for game and enjoyed Esau's hunting prowess and manly behavior. Rebekah, though, favored Jacob, a homebody and the one that she knew had obtained the birthright. Apparently, Isaac did not know of the previous extortion. We know the rest. Rebekah disguises Jacob, dressing him in Esau's garments and gave him some cooked game to bring to his father. Being blind, Isaac could not tell that this was Jacob, even though his voice almost gave him away. Isaac blessed Jacob with the birthright, deceiving Isaac and himself alike. This was due, if you read the story closely, to Rebekah's machinations. Once Isaac and Esau discovered this plot, Jacob was forced to flee to his mother's home in Haran, where he ultimately lived for 21 years, marrying Leah and Rachel in the process. This, too, was Rebekah's doing. Rebekah's role in the saga ends here. But boy, did she play a big role. Let's look at the arc of her story. As a young woman, Rebekah took ownership of her life when she chose to travel to Canaan and become Isaac's wife. Her decision changed the course of Jewish history. She became the change agent that our people needed at that time. And if you look at the text, she could have said no. But then she did something that we can only call dysfunctional parenting. She and Isaac chose sides. As we said, Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah favored Jacob. When parents play two children off against each other, especially twins, trouble is bound to ensue. Not only will the children struggle and fight each other, the verb yitrotsu used to describe their fighting in the womb continued throughout their lives. Why, though, did she take sides? Why did she favor one child over the other? To be fair, I'm not sure. Virtually every parent, I would assume, will vehemently deny favoring one child over the other. Virtually every parent will say, I love all my children equally. But that is not always the case. We may not deliberately favor one child over the other, but I have seen numerous real-life examples of favoritism in action. And every time that this happens, there is family dysfunction. Sometimes this dysfunction is horrible and even tragic. Just look at how, for example, family-owned businesses pass from one generation to the next with perhaps one sibling in charge and the other subservient. The risk of failure in that second generation is much higher than in the founding generation. The Torah only tells us that Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah favored Jacob. Using family systems theory, where we learn that children learn the patterns of behavior from their parents and often pass them to their children, we arrive at a hypothesis. Isaac was the victim of terrible parental abuse. His father tried to kill him. He did not have a great relationship with Abraham. He never saw Abraham again after Mount Moriah. Understandably, this scarred him. But what the Torah does not tell us is that Isaac never saw his mother again his mother who gave birth to him in her old age. Due to his anger towards his father and his yearning for his mother, Isaac was ripe for manipulation. The Torah hints at that when it writes that Isaac took Rebekah into his mother's tent. Not only did Rebekah become Isaac's wife, 
but she also became his surrogate mother. This is dysfunctional. Rebecca took on this mothering role towards Isaac and turned it to her advantage. When Jacob and Esau were born, she transferred this mothering role onto Jacob, not Esau. Perhaps this was because Isaac favored Esau. Esau was everything that Isaac was not, manly, a hunter, one with nature. Isaac was scarred, as we said, and sought comfort with his wife and surrogate mother. Rebecca raised Jacob to be a homebody, a clear opposite to his twin brother. While she differentiated the twins, she also pitted them against each other. At first glance, Rebecca seems like a manipulative, manipulative wife and mother. But when we dig deeper and apply family systems theory to the first family, we can understand the role in which she was thrust. A wife, yet also a surrogate mother, a mother who transferred her experiences to a son who was unable to stand up for himself, yet also to one to carry out those dysfunctions forward. In our next podcast episode, we will see where this multi-generational family dysfunction leads. It's to the story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel. Jacob, Esau's deceiver, is deceived by Rebecca's brother Laban. We'll look at the sibling rivalry of the two sisters and then return to the themes of infertility and rivalry, where in our story and the next are interconnected. I want to thank you for listening to Torah for Christians. To listen to this and previous podcasts, please take a look at our website, www.torforchristians.net, where you can also sign up to receive these episodes as soon as they are published, usually on Monday mornings. Have a wonderful week, and remember, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for us to dwell together as one. Lehitaot till we meet again. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians.